and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Vanessa Bonds is a professor at Cornell University in the Department of Organizational Behavior. She studies help-seeking social influence, compliance, consent, and why it's so damn hard for us to say no to things. She's the author of the book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, and in that book, she discusses why it is we have a hard time saying no and what we can do about it. And she has a background and a PhD in social psychology from Columbia University. She's taught at universities in both Canada and the United States. She's been featured in media outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review. She is someone who thinks deeply about influence and its impact on our everyday lives. In addition to that, she is somebody that really, really cares about the research. So her book is littered with her own research and also her research on other 
people's findings as it relates to impact and influence and really how we show up in the world. So she loves to look at individuals and try to help them see elements that they may not see in themselves and looks to the research to discover what we have a propensity to do and how that impacts our behavior. So here is Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa, thanks for coming on the podcast. I loved your book. It was a nice mixture of research, a lot of research in there. But I was telling you before we started recording, I found it very digestible. So it wasn't anything that was too complicated for someone like me um, to understand and and to get. So I highly recommend people check out the book if they haven't already. Um, But I also started thinking about leadership as I was reading the book because John Maxwell, the author, he would always say leadership is influence. And it was a very simple definition for leadership. And I've had other people on the podcast and I've posed this question and I've started to think, well, is leadership influence alone? Because I think of like the worst of our humans uh, of all time. I'll use like Adolf Hitler. He's a pretty easy example of like awful human. Um, And like he had influence, but his influence was negative. And so like I've started to think about Maxwell's quote around leadership and read books on influence. And I've started to think, well, no, leadership is having a positive influence on a team or an organization or a group or society. Um, And that is what leadership is. As I was going through your book, I'm not sure there was anything necessarily specifically around leadership. So I'm curious for you, how do you think about leadership and its role as it relates to influence? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, kind of this definition of leadership as having a positive influence on a team. I think a lot of people think of leadership as organizing, like effectively organizing a group of people towards a goal. So it could even be a terrible goal, but you could be a good leader if you actually get people to cooperate and coordinate in service of that goal. Um, but I like this idea that it also incorporates a lot of the aspects of influence that I talk about in the book that aren't usually considered uh, leadership, which would be actually the impact you have on the team members, right? Like how you make them feel. Um, And so I definitely, I think that would be part of it. So I think for sure, a big part of leadership is influence, right? It's getting people, and at the end of the day, the way I define influence is just changing any kind of change in another person's uh, way of thinking, their emotions, uh, their way of seeing things. And so, you know, you're basically changing people's perceptions, pushing them along in a direction that you want them to go in. Um, But you don't have to be, I think the main point I make is that you don't have to be a leader in a leadership position to have influence, right? That even as a follower, for example, you have a lot of influence. And so there are a lot of theories like in organizational behavior and psychology about this sort of interplay of followers and leaders and how they both are constantly influencing one another. Um, Many of them suggest that you really have to sort of consent to be led. And so in that way, followers really do have a lot of power as well. And so I think it's my idea of influence is broader than just leadership. Yeah, I think about followers still needing to me focus on positively influencing the team. So they might have to give up some power or some mm-hmm. autonomy or whatever it might be. And I still think that's actually leading. It's interesting because I'm starting to reject the idea that a true leader actually 
I'm using Hitler as like the extreme. I actually don't think he's a leader. Like I'm so because, glad to start this uh, interview with yeah, Hitler. This is I know, <laughs> and like I, I I could pick any other extreme, but it's just he's so so universally a considered a villain, and mm -hmm. and and like I've had a lot of conversations with people, and I'm starting to wonder, yeah. I can be a leader without managing people. Like I still can be a leader by doing the right thing for something bigger than myself. And that in itself is leading. Um, so anyway, it, it's, it's probably a distinction rabbit hole, but um, it's something I'm thinking a lot about because I actually think leadership is what changes the world. And I think leaders drive and impact people around them drastically. And, and you're talking about this power of influence that we all possess. And I think we're all capable of leading and we don't need to be a manager or a captain or a C-suite executive to still do what's best to influence the team to help us get to where we want to go. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. You definitely don't have to be in a formal position of power to be a leader and to lead a team. Um, but I also think that even if, you know, leadership is usually like motivating a group of people, you know, bringing multiple people along with you. Um, and so influence is also these more sort of intimate moments between just you and one other person or, you know, moments where you're actually not, um, necessarily like leading someone towards a goal that you want them to achieve but they're just watching what you do and they kind of copy what you do later and you don't really see that and you don't really know you ever had that impact and i think that kind of more unintentional kind of influence um i don't know that i would group that together with like leadership although i would like to think that we in a way thinking of yourself as a leader all the time that like in a way because you have influence you're kind of always leading people to some extent would be probably a useful way to think about it because the core of your book is basically saying we all have influence we have more than we think we do whether it's on social media or whether it's you know with our friends and family we actually can impact them and and we should value that and cherish it and be intentional with it and mm -hmm. and i wonder about that for leadership uh it, as I'm thinking though I've been told by others that Brian I don't know how you got me to do that but I'm I'm doing it and I, I would have never signed up for that but I talked to you and you convinced me or you impacted me or you influenced me and I actually I work with a coach and I keep a parking lot of items that I want to work with her on and one of them is a question around am I influencing or am I manipulating mm -hmm. and like you mentioned Spider-Man, like with great power comes great responsibility. I've been told by others that I am influential for them. And so I, I am worrisome about my own sort of dark triad or my own um, self-interest. And is it possible that instead of like trying to positively influence, I'm actually just manipulating. How do you break down manipulation compared to, understanding your influence and using it for for good i mean i do think that so one of the things i recommend is this as you mentioned spider-man quote of like you know so if we all have this great influence that we don't necessarily recognize you know part of recognizing it is recognizing that that influence comes with responsibility right that when we say something people are listening and they might follow through on that thing and so you want to actually kind of 
think carefully about what you're saying to other people, um, not necessarily the specific words, because I also talk about how it's not always like the specific words that we often kind of worry about, but it's about like, oh, you just said that thing to them and now they have it in their heads and can't necessarily get it out of their heads. Um, so to some extent, that awareness of the influence you have, I think can make you feel the responsibility but another thing I talk about in the book is there are some people who who have that awareness and they actually do use it to manipulate people. And so one of the people I talk about in the book, right, is Kevin Mitnick, who was a social engineer, basically a hacker who doesn't actually hack using technology, but hacks people. And so he used to sort of call people up and play off all these things I talk about where we feel like we can't say no to people where we don't want to challenge them on what they're presenting to us or the thing that they're asking us or whatever it is that they're saying that we're not really sure is true, but it would make things really awkward if we said like, oh, I don't believe you. And so he was really aware of the influence he had through these just ordinary politeness norms and people's unwillingness to reject people and unwillingness to challenge people. And so he really used that to manipulate the system and to manipulate people. Um, and years later, you know, he's been reformed and now he works with companies to sort of uh, prevent this from happening. But I think it just shows that simple awareness is not enough to sort of, you know, shift from using your influence or persuasion positively, uh, you know, instead of using it manipulatively. Um, and so it really is kind of in the goals of the user to some extent. How does authenticity play a role in influence? That's a good question. Um, I would say that I'm not sure broadly. Um, one set of studies that I think sort of speaks to that question is the studies I've done on giving compliments. So to a large extent, so we have participants basically go out and compliment random people and they guess how good the compliments will make someone feel. And then we uh, we ask those people how good the compliments actually make them feel. And we find that people underestimate how good their compliments make other people feel. The thing about those compliments is that while there are studies where we say, like, find something you authentically like about this other person, right? Like identify something you genuinely think is really great and then compliment them on that. There are other studies where we say, hey, just find someone and just tell them you like their shirt. So it doesn't, you know, they don't actually necessarily like this person's shirt. They're just saying it. So it could be completely inauthentic. It's also part of a contrived experiment. Um, and so they think again that, you know, this compliment is not going to be well received. But even then, the compliment is still well received because it's just something nice someone said about them. Um, and it kind of reminds me. So uh, we had a debate about whether, you know, maybe compliments that are inauthentic still sort of work in that way. Maybe we actually worry too much about being authentic and actually people just take what we give them. And they're like, OK, I like, you know, I just want to hear nice things about myself. And it reminded me of this um, this sort of chat uh, function website that was getting sent around years ago, like way before there were much more uh, sophisticated apps where you type in your name and it just starts giving you compliments, just like spitting out pure, like super, you know, simplistic text. So I would type in like Vanessa and it would just be like, Vanessa, you look lovely today. 
<laughs> Vanessa, you're so smart. Vanessa, I just think you're a wonderful person. It's just like these texts, like sentences popping out. And I remember that going around and everyone was like, why does it feel so good? Like, I know it's a computer program. I know this isn't real, but it still just feels good. And so I think for certain kinds of influence, like saying nice things to people, you know, it's ideal if it's authentic and people don't want to feel like you're trying to get something out of them or you're trying to manipulate them. Like there's definitely sort of boundary effects, but I actually think the boundaries are wider than we tend to think that, you know, there is a lot of, we, we're not very good basically at telling when someone's authentic or not. And if we're hearing what we want to hear, we'll just kind of go with it. Yeah. I think often I do this podcast from, from my own knowledge and then hopefully others will benefit from it because I did this study when I was rebranding my business and I reached out to all my clients and people that had worked with me and then they, the branding people go through and look at, all right, what are words that they're finding show up often and being authentic or genuine was showing up. And I mentioned getting feedback from people earlier about being able to influence them. That was something I've heard over time. And then I've also heard people be like, Brian's just a genuine dude. Like uh, he's, he's just authentic. I trust him. And I was expecting my clients to say how like our theories and frameworks and research and tools were transformational and brilliant and all of these amazing competencies. And I was kind of surprised to see that it was more about that they trusted me and they felt like I could be truthful with them and, and be genuine. And so I was curious if there was any connection between authenticity and influence. And I've always struggled with the word authentic because I'm like, I don't really think I know how to teach you how to do that. And I don't really focus on being authentic. I I guess I do because I focus on being me, but I don't know any other way. Like I, I don't, I don't know how to be anything other than that. So it's not something that I'm intentionally doing. So that was like the impetus for me sort of being curious about that. And as I think about uh, manipulation or influence, and you talk a lot about people's fear of, of saying the wrong thing. And I've seen this when I've gone through hard times and hardships that when I don't hear from people, I create a story in my head as far as why they didn't reach out. And one of the pieces of advice that I've given to people that didn't reach out to me during that time is to say, Hey, just an FYI, I know your intent was that you didn't know what to say and you didn't want to say the wrong thing, but here's what it did on the other end of it. Uh, here's how it landed with me. Can you talk a little bit about fear of saying the wrong thing and, and why that gets in the way for a lot of humans? Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about how someone else is going to react to something we say, you know, whether it's, you know, acknowledging um, grief someone's going through, whether it's, you know, telling someone why they didn't get a job, whether it's telling someone why we think they're great, you know, and expressing gratitude for all that they've done for us. We really focus on how competently we can express ourselves. So we really kind of focus on this idea of like, well, can I get the words right? Like, what should I say? What is the actual exact wording I should use so that I don't make things awkward or, you know, so that I can express my true feelings. And we really focus on that to the point where we hold back and wind up saying nothing because we can't find the right words. And the research really suggests that 
people respond much more to the emotion and the act of just saying something than they do to the precise words. Um, I think especially like these days, people have the sense of like, oh, if I slip, people are going to jump down my throat. But that is so much less likely than we actually think. That's much more of something that's in our own heads and not in reality. And so I think you telling people like, hey, this is by you not saying something, this is what I was left kind of thinking is really helpful for people. And they realize sort of, okay, if I just said something, that's not at all what I wanted him to think, right? If I just said something, no matter how, how clunkily I delivered it or inarticulately I said it, you know, I could at least get the point across, the main point. And that's what people are left with. And that's what people really, really care about in the end. You mentioned like fear of saying the wrong thing. You wrote a book. Uh, I, I wrote a book. A fear for me is that I know five years from now, I, there's already stuff in the book. Mine was published uh, three years ago, I think. I don't remember. Three and a half years ago. Uh, like there's already stuff in there. I'm like, mm, oh shit. Like, I don't know if I still want that um, out in the universe. You were writing a book. You were doing it during a pandemic. Uh, how did you overcome a fear of saying the wrong thing and delivering the wrong message to an audience? I mean, I definitely was worried about that. I think most people are, right? If you're going to put something out there and it's going to sort of live, you know, you you worry that uh, people are going to take it in a way that you didn't expect or that it's, you know, going to become irrelevant or potentially even offensive years from now. And so, you know, I did things that many people do. You know, I had people read it, right? Like I didn't trust my own gut all the time. I just... Uh, I, I would give it to lots of people and I would ask questions and sort of have people vet it. Um, it is interesting that you bring up writing it in COVID because I remember I was reading, writing the last chapter what, during lockdown uh, with my two kids at home. And I was kind of going back and forth with my editor about how much to make it about like almost like a historical moment. Like this is me writing this book here in this moment that, you know, what is that going to mean? How many years from now? And I was reflecting on, you know, I can't think of a specific example now, but I feel like there's a lot of books where the sort of context is so interesting to think of this person writing in this time. Um, and while I wanted sort of the overarching points to be, you know, long lasting and evergreen, um, I still kind of liked that sense of place. Like this is this is the current state. And I think we're learning that context does actually mean a lot. And so having that context in there, I think was actually helpful. And I'm glad that I, I wound up putting it in there as sort of this uh, almost like historical uh, aspect of the book. Um, but also, I mean, one of the things I do say and, and talk about is that we, our fears of all of that, of these negative reactions are so often overblown right in our heads like these horrible things are going to happen um when in reality you know it's just so rare that someone is actually going to be that upset in fact most people you know are cooperative and reasonable and i know it doesn't sound you know you know you might sort of be like well look on social media that's clearly not true but that's that is true in so many other contexts right like social media has made us think that that's what people are like all the time um, but that is actually not the way most people are most of the time. Well, and I mean, I've also looked, social media can lean negative, but I've also experienced like amazing 
things on social media or even like book reviews. So uh, we're all on like five out of five book reviews. Like no one lives in a world with five out of five on your book. Like there's no way you're going to have a hundred people read your book and a hundred of them are going to like your book. When we go to a movie, I don't know about you. If I go with six people, not all six people like the movie or the TV show or the music, like it's, we have different tastes and yet like there's a, there's an, um, amplification of the negative noise, whether it's a book review or on social media, like even when I post on social media, like a lot of it's positive. A lot of people are in agreement or, Oh, thanks for sharing. Or I have a newsletter. Like I get responses back. It's just the negative ones tend to tend to stay with us. Um, you mentioned the gut earlier and like, you didn't want to just rely on your gut when you're writing your book. So you had other people read it. Uh, do you find that influence is more of an emotional uh, response and reaction, or is it more like, I always think there's our head, there's our gut, there's our heart. Uh, the gut is like reaction is, is trusting instinct. Our heart is where we connect with people and maybe more empathetic. And our head is where the data and the analytics and the ability to think logically comes in. Um, do you feel like influence lives in one of those more than the other? Um, you know what, I think uh, a lot of people talk about influence through emotion and storytelling. So, you know, there's the classic sorts of um, uh, influence recommendations, like things like what we call the identifiable victim effect, right? Like if you tell a story about one person, everyone like their emotions kick in, all of a sudden, it's a story. And you know, you're you're convincing them to do something. If you tell a story about a million people, they become a statistic, right? Um, and so I think there is a fair amount uh, of support for the idea that a lot of influence does happen uh, emotionally uh, and uh, sort of unconsciously. So to the point where, you know, we talked earlier about like authenticity and trust, and there is work showing that if we trust a source, it doesn't really matter that much what they're saying in many cases. We just kind of, we just trust because we trust that person. And so that also would be more of sort of a, an unconscious, um, indirect way of influencing people. And then as a, as a social psychologist, so what we often focus on is actual behavior. So like at the end of the day, you know, you want to change attitudes and you want to change emotions and things like that. But at the end of the day, you want people to behave. And so, um, for the most part, influence to that extent is about like your action, right? Like, what do you what do you actually do at the end of this conversation? Like, do you actually donate money? Do you actually, you know, um, leave a, a review? Do you actually just do something different? Buy a or put up a solar panel on your house? Whatever it might be, um, there's a lot uh, of research that focuses on kind of the, the ultimate behavior that you want people to do as the true influence, right? Like the revealed preference as opposed to the stated preference. One of the things you talk about is behavioral contagion and the ability to influence uh, from a team standpoint and the behavior of others and how that impacts us. Can you talk a little bit about behavioral contagion and how behavior can impact us and influence us in all kinds of ways? Yeah, so behavioral contagion is basically the idea that when we see somebody else doing something, we're more likely to do it ourselves. And so this has been demonstrated in all sorts of ways. You see these almost like clusters of behaviors that pop up in the population. So 
for example, my colleague here at Cornell, Bob Frank, he talks about solar panels and how if you look at sort of the aerial imagery of solar panels in neighborhoods, you see these clusters that almost look like little spreads of disease, right? As if they sort of spread from one house to another. Um, and the thing that I find most fascinating about behavioral contagion is that that means not only are we influenced by what other people are doing, right? What our neighbors are doing, but it also means that when we do something, other people are influenced by what we're doing, right? And so if we are, you know, discussing with our partner about whether we want to put a solar panel on our house and we decide to do it and we start building it, you know, our neighbors walk by our house and start wondering what we're doing and why we're doing it and start simulating that sort of decision process themselves. And so because of that, we have this extraordinary influence that we may not even realize uh, and that can apply to teams as well, right? So as, if one person on the team starts doing something, you'll often see like a lot of other people on the team suddenly start doing it. And you see this sort of coordination of a certain behavior, whether it be something you're wearing or a certain kind of celebration or whatever it might be. Um, but it's just, it's a really sort of fascinating way that behavior spreads from person to person. Yeah, we saw that Michael Jordan famously had something he called the breakfast club. And so he would wake up early in the morning and practice and bring his teammates to practice with them. So when they were in championships, their thought was like, we're practicing when other people are sleeping. Sports science would probably have something to say about getting your sleep. Um, but <laughs> that since it's been replicated, I know college teams where one person was just going, waking up early and getting shots up. And over time, the rest of the team started following them and, and doing that as well. When I've read that in the book, though, where my mind went, I'm based in Washington, D.C. Uh, I, I heard solar panels, but I thought of um, signs for, for politicians. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking if you have one neighbor that has one sign and the next door neighbor has a different sign, um, like what does that do as far as uh, contagion goes and does it ever backfire? Is there ever like a, you know, they have that sign up. All right. I'm going to put my sign up that's opposed to that sign. And, and what does that do? I don't know if there's research around that, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on if there are ever people that are going to notice it and sort of go in the opposite direction um, in it. Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to sort of the complexity of behavior contagion. So when we talk about it, it seems so simple, right? It's like, it feels like a copycat kind of thing. Like you do that, I copy it. But in fact, you know, we're humans and a lot of our behaviors are based on how we interpret a situation and how we sort of ascribe meaning to a behavior that we are going to copy. And so, you know, if someone puts a, a political sign up that isn't the person we support. It's not like, oh, now I'm going to copy and put that same person's sign, right? It's not that simple. Um, but it could be like, oh, I guess now we're putting signs up, right? Like, I, I see this and now I'm going to copy that behavior in my own way. Or, you know, in sports, it could be something like, oh, you know, now we're celebrating. I'm not going to do your celebration, but I'm going to come up with my own, right? So it's not just like this tit for tat, like I'm just going to exactly copy or mirror what you're doing. Um, and so, yeah, I could definitely see once one person starts putting up like a political sign, the neighborhood sort of, even if they're not supporting all the same person, right, that the, the signs start going up. Yeah, I think of things like belonging and psychological safety and, you know, the power of 
you know, you walk into a neighborhood and everyone's got the same sign. Okay. I'm safe enough to put up my sign and you go to another part of the country and maybe you don't feel safe or maybe you don't feel a sense of belonging. And that leads to me thinking about embarrassment. And a lot of what I read about in your book is that humans have this fear of embarrassment or shame. And that often causes us to not take action or, or to not do certain behavior. Can you talk about the role of embarrassment and how that influences us when it comes to our capacity for, for influence? Yeah. And I mean, this really is an evolutionary thing, right? We have these, what many people refer to as moral emotions, like embarrassment and shame and things like that. Um, and they are there to keep us connected to the group because we are social animals and we really need the group to survive and always sort of did. So embarrassment is this incredibly strong emotion. We worry about other people's um, opinions of us, right? As you said, you know, we wanna feel like it's safe if I reveal my political preference or it's safe if I do this thing, I'm not gonna be judged and essentially in our deep evolutionary core, like kicked out of the group, right? Um, and so what that means is that there's a lot of things in influence that embarrassment sort of leads us to go along with because we don't want to risk damaging that relationship or offending someone or, you know, making things awkward. So one of the things I look at a lot in my research is how hard it is to say no to people. Um, so if I'm trying to get you to do something and I ask you for something, right, we feel really embarrassed and awkward when we think about saying no. We really worry about what that's going to mean for the relationship. Like, is this, per is this person not going to like me anymore if I say no? Um, am I going to look like a bad person? Am I going to make them feel bad? Am I, you know, somehow going to damage this relationship or their perception of me? And so it actually makes say just asking a question just asking someone to do something which is the most simple form of influence that i study quite a bit right it makes it this incredibly powerful tool in many ways because it's just so hard for people to say no to sort of resist it because of this fear of embarrassment and awkwardness and uh, breaking social ties it's interesting when i thought about my friends as i was reading that i think i have friends that definitely have a hard time saying no but then I have friends who have a hard time saying yes. And I feel as though it's like, you know, I'll ask them if they want to do this or they want to do that. And, you know, they are never game. Like they're never in. It's always like, you know, I have my friends are like, yeah, I'm in. Yes, let's do it. Um, and they struggle to say no. And then I have others that are, it seems like they have a hard time saying yes. Uh, is there anything on the other side of the coin here where, Maybe there are some people that are predisposed to, maybe they should have to learn how to say yes instead of saying no. Um, anything on, on that side of it? Yeah, I think on the whole, what we find is that we tend to assume that other people will default to no, that that's basically other people's default state of being when we ask them for something. Um, and that that tends not to be true on average, but of course there's always gonna be individual variants and there's gonna be people who have no trouble saying no whatsoever. Um, those people often have gotten into the habit of doing it. So they have their sort of script that they do it, that they use to say no, you know, they've done it before, they kind of know the drill. When you call, if, they, if they're already kind of expecting what you're gonna ask, they already have the plan for what they're going to say. And so they actually are using a lot of tactics I often give to people who have trouble saying no, which is plan ahead, 
uh, have a script, right? Uh, sort of come up with a way that you can buy yourself some time. That's often, you know, I'll get back to you. Um, come up with a way to say like, it's not you, it's not me, it's not our relationship, but I just don't want to do this thing. So there are some people who have mastered that for sure. But it, it does seem based on our research that most people kind of err in the other direction of having a really hard time saying no. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's done 315 podcast episodes, it is interesting. There are people that say no right off the bat, where they'll say, I'm just not doing podcasts anymore, or they'll say, I'm not doing podcasts this year. Uh, and they're right up front. And I really appreciate that. And then there are others who will say yes. And then when I reach out to confirm that we'll be recording the next day, they'll say, I can't make it. And I'll say, okay, well, like, let's find a time to reschedule and it will be crickets. And to me, that's far less professional than the person who says right up front, I, I'm not going to be able to make this happen, which I understand. Like it is not a, they don't work for me. There's not like a contract. It's okay. And I think a lot of us say yes. And then later on we, we say no and our integrity and our professionalism takes a knock. Uh, and I love when people say no right off the bat. And then I started thinking about boundaries and the value of boundaries. And I find it's interesting, even when I set boundaries for myself and say no to things, I still can't control how it's going to influence someone on the other side anyway. Like they still could think I'm a jerk for, for saying no, or I put a lot of boundaries on my time when people want to pick my brain for my career. And so I'll say, yeah, I have time, but it might be six weeks from now or two months from now. And some people are like, okay, great. I'll take it. And some people won't. Um, but boundaries for you, uh, especially with the book and you, you've done a lot of media. Have you put any boundaries on your own time and how you're spending it and thinking about, um, how you can have automatic no's or automatic yeses and maybes I've seen it done a bunch of different ways, even with media requests. How have you thought about your own ability to manage your time? Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the things I think about is just whether it's no or yes, just being mindful about what you agree to, because I think a lot of the times what happens is we're put on the spot and we have a hard time saying no. And so we do what you said and just like agree, but then bail, right? When it actually comes down to it, or we agree to do something that we just really don't have time to do, or it just takes us away from something else we'd rather be doing. And so I do think I really have tried to be more mindful instead of just kind of mindlessly saying yes to everything. I mean, and we like you have FOMO, you're like, oh, but if I we kind of don't want to say no to stuff and we feel obligated and we feel bad and all those things are going on. Um, but what I try to do now to be more mindful is to really sort of understand that each time I say yes to one thing, I am saying no to something else Right? I can't do everything. I have a packed schedule. so. I, I really think of it as like, okay, agreeing to this is saying no to maybe something else that you might want to be doing. And so I try to think through it and think about like, is this something really worth my time? Um, and then I often do what you said, you know, I might come up with some in-between solution where I say, you know, right now it just feels like too much, but in the future, I'm happy to like put that on the schedule. And at that point I could say no to other things, you know, it's important enough that, or I'm willing enough that I'll like pass it down the line. And if that's okay with the other person, then that that's fine with me too. 
What's the history as far as how you even got interested in studying this and who influenced you to help you uh, get focused on this and, and become interested in doing all this research? Yeah, well, the sort of big first study that got me interested was when I was working with Frank Flynn, who was a professor at Columbia when I was a graduate student. And we were doing this sort of traditional influence study. So my work is very much, uh, it's in the domain of social influence, but instead of looking at like how to get people to do things, I look at our intuitions about whether we could get people to do things and what we think is going to work and what we don't think is going to work and whether those are right or wrong. And we make a lot of mistakes is what I find. And so when I first started out, I was just doing sort of traditional influence research. And I was collecting data for a study we were doing where we needed a diverse population of adults, not just college students. And we were in New York City. So the best place to do that, we decided, was Penn Station. And so I would take the subway down to Penn Station every day and go up to people and ask them to fill out this questionnaire, which was part of the study that we were running. And it was such a traumatic experience because I hated going up to people. And I was always convinced they were going to say no to me or they were going to be rude to me. Um, and then finally the study was over and I was just relieved to never have to go to Penn Station again. And we brought the, we started looking at the data when I finished and brought it back to Frank and we realized that the study didn't work. And I was particularly sort of devastated because it had been, in my opinion, like so hard to collect this data in such a traumatic process, right? And I was explaining that to Frank, just how, what a bummer it was, even though, you know, studies don't work all the time in science, like it's just part of the game. But he was looking at the data and he was like, you know, you're describing this terrible experience but it actually looks like most people were saying yes to you. And, you know, were they mean to you when they did say no? And I was like, no, they were actually pretty kind. And, and you know, uh, they were just they were pretty friendly. And most people did say yes. And so when I actually sort of reflected on the experience, I was so focused on the negatives and my fears that I wasn't really attuned to what was actually happening. And once I looked at that objective reality, I realized that it was really just out of line with what the way I had experienced it in my head. And so that was the beginning of getting interest in, interested in this disconnect between our perceptions of influence and the reality, that we often think that interactions are going much worse in our head, um, that we're having a lot worse of uh, much less of an impact than we'd like in our heads than we in fact actually are. And so that's what I've studied ever since. It's so interesting because when I publish these podcasts, I'll record it. Some of them I'll be like, oh, that was amazing. I loved it. And some of them like, ah, I don't know how that turned out. And a lot of the ones where I'm like, ah, I don't know how it turned out. I'll get text message and emails and direct messages saying, man, I love that. And I think you're right. Like we have a poor perception of sometimes our own performances or our own execution. What do you think you're going to be focused on over the next decade? Like what, what interests you? Uh, is it staying in this domain? Is it exploring others? Cause if I hear you correctly, it's okay. It happened to be influenced, but your passion is really helping people discover something about themselves that they might not have known. That's what I'm sort of hearing. And even when I heard you describe how the title came about, it's like, you have more influence than you think. It's, it's very much directed toward an individual. Um, as you think about 
the future. I'm not even saying another book or anything like that. I'm just suggesting like what, what interests you uh, that you're maybe going to research or study in the lab or something you're working on now that you weren't working on three, five, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think I, there is sort of an ongoing interest that I've always had about, you know, the misperceptions we have about what we think, you know, what, how hard we are in ourselves and our heads and, you know, how negative we could be and how the objective reality often doesn't match that. And so I think that's sort of an ongoing interest that plays out in all sorts of different ways. Um, my most recent research is actually taking, so the work that I've done on asking for things, as I said, you know, just a simple ask is like the simplest form of influence and it's insanely powerful. This is what we find in our studies again and again. It's just so much more powerful than we think. And a major reason for that is that it's so hard to say no. And so this is technically, you know, the domain of compliance, like getting people to comply with requests. But it made me really interested, the fact that it was so hard for people to say no, it made me really interested in the sort of corresponding area of consent. So, you know, if you're saying yes to something because you feel like you can't say no, are you really sort of consenting to that thing? And so my more recent research uh, and what I see doing, you know, for the next decade or so is really kind of delving into what makes us feel like we've actually consented to something. And that can apply to all sorts of different situations. You know, um, my family and I were at Universal Studios last week. So we had this like Orlando, you know, theme park vacation, which was a bit overwhelming. Uh, And one of the things they did, which I had no idea was going to happen was they took our fingerprints every time we went into the the park and i was like this is insane and we had paid you know so much money for tickets already and on the ticket it said you know you may need to show photo id i was like okay fine but then we get there and each person is just like putting their fingerprints on at that point you know we asked a couple questions about how long they hold on to the information just so we had a sense but like we didn't really know much about where that information was going. We didn't really feel like we had a choice. Like we're a whole family there who had waited in like a very long line and gotten up very early and spent a lot of money. Were we really gonna say, no, we're not gonna give our fingerprints. And so those moments are examples of feeling like you really didn't consent to something, but still sort of going along with it. And so there's lots of different examples like that. Yeah. I mean, and during COVID, regardless of what you feel about all of that, mask mandates, vaccine cards, I mean, uh, different parts of our society, you'd walk into a restaurant and show a vaccine card and other parts you weren't and some parts you were wearing a mask and other parts you weren't. Uh, And going back to behavioral contagion, I mean, I think it was pretty interesting just to watch from a social experiment. And I think a lot of times teams talk about compliance and are we trying to have you know, people that are complying to what we want or are they compelled and are they inspired? Like there are distinctions to be made there. Uh, But you mentioned Universal and I started smiling as you talked about it because we went last year. Um, And I'm thinking about my kids pretty much in every podcast. I've got two kids and I wonder about you in the role that you're in and being a parent and how you think about your work and the influence it has on how you're influencing your kids and how you're thinking about your role as a mom and as a parent. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how your work shapes or doesn't uh, shape how you show up for, for your kids? Yeah, no, I, it definitely shapes it quite a bit. It's interesting. So I'll tell you a couple of ways. So one is that 
one of the things I talk about is that we often try to sort of hammer uh, things that we're trying to influence someone to do so much more than we need to, right? We're much more assertive and aggressive and trying to convince someone to do something or listen to us than we actually need to be. And in fact, people hear us and they process, they might not say right in that moment, like, oh yeah, you totally changed my mind or now I totally agree with you, right? But they hear you and a week later, a month later, maybe if they hear someone else say it, like it eventually can sink in in many cases. And I think in particular with kids, right? They don't necessarily want you to know that they are listening or you know that you did convince them to do something and so the kind of a lot is happening inside their heads that you can't access and so i try one of the sort of recommendations because of this this sort of error we have we make i try i tell people that they don't need to sort of be so assertive when they're trying to influence people that they can say something and kind of trust that that message is in there and it'll percolate for a while. Um, and so I try really hard to do that with my kids, right? I, as much as like part of me wants to tell them for the millionth time something, I'll say it and I'll just, you know, let it go. And I, I've been amazed by these moments where I'll do something and it's like, I, I'm like fighting the urge to tell them something for the third time. And my like eight year old will walk away to the other room and then come back like 10 minutes later and be like, mom, just so you know, I, I heard you and I did that thing. So it's like, okay, I just, you know, I just back off a little. So that's one way. Um, and here's another way that came up uh, the other day. So we love Japanese. We go out to Japanese food all the time. And we always have this choice between like the hibachi table and the regular sushi table, right? And I mean, kids love hibachi, right? It's fire. It's like a show. And so kids, kids love hibachi, <laughs> butterfly, uh, the shrimp in the hat. I, I went to Benihana in, in our, we live in the same neighborhood as Benihana. And growing up, I went there for my birthday, like every year, uh, as an adult, my relationship <laughs> with hibachi has changed drastically, but there is nostalgia inside of me that like loves walking in, just hearing the banging and the the chefs. And so anyway, I will say a part of me loves it. Well, my nostalgia loves it. The version of me today, my body doesn't love it. Um, but we love sushi. But anyway, go on. I just interrupted your story. No, no, no. It's great. I'm glad. So I, it feels like the normal thing that kids should love hibachi though, right? Like it's just, it, it is a show. Like it's it's a show. So we, you know, we took our kids and we, we chose the hibachi table a couple times. And we were like, isn't this great? Isn't this fun? And then like the third time we went and we were choosing, they were like, both of them were just like, no, we don't want to do hibachi. We want to do the regular table. And we're like, are you kidding me? Your kids, we're offering hibachi. And they said, it was interesting. It was mostly the eight-year-old, but the four-year-old just agrees with whatever she says. So she was like, but they always try to squirt things in my mouth, like the water bottle. And they always try to flip food in my mouth and I don't like it. And I can't say no. And I was like, but you can say no, like all the other stuff, the fire and the, you know, the show and all stuff. It's so fun. And she's like, I, I like all that, but I don't want them to do this. I don't want them to throw food at my face. And I was like, all you have to do is say no, like just tell them like, no, thank you. But it was like so hard for her to master being able to say no. And so this has become like, my husband actually said I should call like my next book lessons in a, in a hibachi restaurant because I was trying to use hibachi and saying no to this person flinging food at their faces as a way of like training them to learn how to say no if they don't want something done to them. 
it's interesting with kids and I try to make my kids not be a psychological experiment, but every day it is psychological warfare. And I've got two great kids, but they are polar opposite. I don't know if your two are polar opposite, but ours are seven and six. My seven-year-old boy is very compliant, puts his shoes on, wants to be on time. Um, you know, we if we tell him to brush his teeth, brushing his teeth. My daughter, I mean, she says no all the time. She says stop. Like literally, I'm looking at her stop. Like she is the one that I have a really hard time influencing and and I am working and trying to find ways to connect with her. I don't think I'm trying to well, I'm probably trying to influence her, but um, I, I do. I struggle. She is way more defiant. She's way more independent. She's strong. She's fierce. I'm not worried about her as an adult. I'm worried about her, you know, as 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 a six year old. And and so it is interesting because I do. I have a harder time with the one that is less compliant to influence. And I wonder about is that good or bad? Is that like, is his compliance maybe going to get him into some situations that will harm him? And is she maybe going to be better equipped to say no and say stop and, um, you know, in a variety of parts of her life. And so as a parent, I find it like, how do I not stifle her own owning her own influence while still needing her to get her shoes on to go to school. Like it is a, the struggle is real in our house. Um, and so as a parent, I see it every day and you've got me even thinking about it. Like, and we've talked to people and gotten advice on it. And they often say she wants to have agency and and you need to, when you can give her that influence of herself and that ownership so that she's leading and you don't want to stifle it. And so I think if you, if you don't have kids and you're listening to this, it still applies. If you're a manager, um, not to say that adults in a business are the same as a six or seven year old, but we're all in the business of trying to impact and trying to influence people to move in a certain direction. And so I appreciate that about your book because I think it is relevant. Really, I know uh, publishers always ask, who's this book for? And I'd imagine you said, well, I think everybody probably uh, needs this. Did, did you say that? Or what was your response when they asked you? I don't remember actually, but I do feel like it's everywhere. And what's interesting is, you know, as you said, like, it's not just like, it's not a parent thing, right? Like, I don't even talk about kids in the book at all. And yet people are always asking me questions about like influencing their kids and how these concepts apply to kids. So it's just something that's like, fundamental in our DNA, like, to resist influence my fields too much, and everyone has their own sort of individual determination of what that is, you know, to have it be hard to say no, and not always to everyone, right? Because like, my kids are fine saying no to me, that's for sure. But like, to other adults, it gets a lot harder. So I do think like, you know, as we talked about earlier, a lot of these things are just baked into our DNA. So in, in that way, it is for everybody because we we kind of act like business and certain types of leadership contexts are like special contexts, right? When in fact, we're all human and so many just fundamental human concerns apply, you know, even in these like business contexts, right? We still are worried about making a fool out of ourselves. We're still, you know, worried about being liked. Like all those things are still going on. It doesn't change because you're in a professional setting, for example. 
we're going to wind down and where I thought we'd end is with this idea of gratitude. And you talk about the research on gratitude letters. I actually um, often will have my clients that I coach write letters of gratitude. I have done that and not just write it, but then deliver it uh, over the phone to people. And it's been pretty incredible to watch, not just the reaction of the person writing and delivering, but also the person receiving. And um, can you talk a little bit about gratitude and how gratitude shapes maybe how we see the world or, or how we influence people? Yeah. And that's, that's so amazing that you have your clients do that because I think that's just such a good exercise. Um, I think, you know, we tend to underestimate the power of expressing gratitude, you know, for ourselves and for the other person. Research shows that we think that things like economic incentives and, you know, these tangible sorts of things that we can offer are going to be most motivating when we want people to do things or we want to influence somebody. When in fact, you know, things like just expressing gratitude and giving compliments and telling people they're doing a good job means so much. Like we, people are hungry for that. And so that is such a strong incentive that we tend to underestimate. And as we talked about earlier, you know, we think that we have to do it perfectly. We think that we have to say it exactly right. Um, but for the most part, people just want to hear nice things. Um, I will say, you know, gratitude and compliments, the intention is for them to convey respect. Like the reason we like them is they basically tell us like, you belong here. So I respect you. You're really part of this group. And so you do want to make sure that you are sort of expressing gratitude for the right things and complimenting people on the right things. You know, you don't want to express gratitude for someone who's doing like, uh, all this work that they feel like they really shouldn't be doing or something or like compliment someone on something that almost like demeans them in their role. So you want to be aware that like this expression of gratitude or this kind word is really like conveying respect. But other than that, just say it right. Don't worry so much about exactly how you say it and phrasing it perfectly, perfectly, because it just means so much more to the other person than than we think. Yeah, you hit on in the book. I mean, as a as a male compliments in a work setting for me it, it definitely changed during the me too movement and even how i interact like i do not go in for hugs anymore i wait for the other person to initiate it and the me too movement which you cover in your book uh, is complicated and loaded um and uh there are a lot of pieces to it. And you mentioned consent earlier and my mind goes to uh, sexual consent as well. And I know you talk a lot about the workplace and, you know, what is consensual and power dynamics. And we had Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and <laughs> uh, stuff that you cover in the book. Um, but I, I do think about compliments and I think men, I'll just speak for me. Like I have to be thoughtful about my compliments, right? If I if I say something that is not respectful in the way I'm complimenting, or if I'm even expressing gratitude, but it's not done with respect, there are consequences. And I think probably rightfully so. Um, so all of a sudden, when I say, oh, that's a nice shirt to a woman, I have to be thoughtful about how that might be heard and um, or your hair looks better. Or if it's if it's anything based on physical looks, I think uh, we live in a world where we have to be really thoughtful about how that's coming off or how someone's receiving that. And for me, at least where I start to go toward is to 
honor and compliment the character and honor and compliment the behavior and the actions more than the looks. Um, even, I mean, just the other day you posted a video of Dan Pink and he said, you know, he ended it with a compliment and he was saying, Vanessa, you look great. Are you exercising? Right. And like in my mind, like today I have to think about how I'm delivering compliments and it's just the reality of the world. Same thing with if I'm in a position of power and I say to someone like, I'd love to take you out for a drink. Um, like that is a, message that needs to be thought about in a strategic and thoughtful and intentional and mindful way when it's being delivered. So I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. You cover it quite a bit. Um, the context, it, 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 the nuance of it is, is complicated and is, it, it requires intention and thought. Uh, I want to just give you some space to, to riff on that. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny that you bring up the Dan Pink uh, video, because at the end of that, we actually had a, dis a discussion about whether that was like the best compliment to end it on. And we wound up being like, whatever, it was a good take. <laughs> you know, how many people are overanalyzing this? But I, I totally agree with you. And my worry is that I've actually heard a lot of men say, I'm just not going to compliment women anymore. Right? Like, it's just too complicated. It's too sticky. And I feel like that is not the answer, right? Because a lot of men are in positions of power and expressing appreciation to people, uh, express appreciation to people who work for you or who work around you is actually a really important thing. And to say, I'm not gonna compliment uh, women at all because it's just too complicated is really not the answer. So I think what you're saying is really what people need to do, right? Is be more intentional about it compliment people on their character. I think when people are saying like, I'm not going to compliment women anymore, it's like on their looks, which yeah, that's probably a good thing, right? Like find something more substantive to compliment someone on. Um, and I mean, you can even imagine like if you imagine yourself, like you just give this killer presentation, for example, and someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, great, like haircut, you know, it's like that that's like definitely not conveying respect. So it's sort of identifying like what's the right moment to give the right type kind of compliment and keeping in mind, like, does this compliment convey respect? Is that the reason I'm giving it? Does it convey appreciation? Um, but like not holding back altogether, just not doing it. Yeah. I grew out a beard in the last three months and the amount of people that have an opinion on it is, <laughs> is annoying. And, uh, but I just want to end with this. First of all, like, Dan Pink is one of the greatest cheerleaders of any author. I mean, he's written, written more endorsements on books than I think anybody. And um, he lived in Washington, D.C. We spent some time together. He's been a podcast guest. Like uh, He is very complimentary of people. And for my book, he certainly uh, it, it changed my view of the book. And that compliment really stuck with me. Um, and then I want to compliment you and uh, your book and the research. And as somebody who's not in the lab and not studying um, this stuff, it's people like you that allow me to to go do great work. And so I think sometimes uh, we have people that are doing the research and then we have people that are in the field and and they can be somewhat segregated. And for me, at least, I think that they actually feed each other in a pretty amazing way. And and so I appreciate your work. And uh, this has been a lot of fun to sit down and, and ask you questions. And I, I'll, I'll say this lastly, I appreciate that you won't just give me a BS answer. And you talk about uh, bullshitting in the book even. Um, and there's a chapter on, there's a section on bullshitting. 
and um we're gonna cut out some of the stuff uh, on this podcast <laughs> um but the reason we're cutting it out is because i think there were questions that i probably wasn't delivering in a articulate way a and then b like if you just didn't have an answer you weren't going to bs me and just give me an answer and so i want to compliment you and and let you know i appreciate that and i think too often we are uncomfortable with silence or we're uncomfortable with not knowing or we're uncomfortable with not having all the answers and you're very clear on what you've studied and what you've researched and what you feel convicted in. And I appreciate that you're not willing to have conviction in something that you may not have researched. And so I find it refreshing. And so thank you for, uh, for doing that. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. And it just shows like the pressure where you feel like you have to say something, right? Because I just feel like, oh my God, he's gonna, like, I don't have an answer to that. I gotta come up with something. I have nothing to say. He's gonna hate this. But yeah, I appreciate uh, that. And I do, I would much rather have like a conversation that I feel good about all the things we talked about than like have this kind of bullshitty stuff in the middle. <laughs> so I appreciate I, that too. I would leave it in, but we'll cut it out just to make it cleaner. And uh, Vanessa, Thank you. And uh, if people want to learn more about your work and what you're up to, social media, um, where can people find you? Uh, so you can go to my website, which is www.vanessabonds.com, or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, at, at Prof Bonds. Perfect. I am on LinkedIn. You're also on LinkedIn as well, yes. at Brian Levinson. Uh, you can find Vanessa on LinkedIn. And then I'm on Twitter as well, at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Some of Vanessa's friends have been on. We had Todd Cashin. We had on Zoe Chance. And we had out Ethan Cross. We mentioned Dan Pink earlier as well. So uh, those are great episodes if people want to learn more about similar types of interests to Vanessa. So really appreciate you. Uh, looking forward to continuing to get to know you and, and following your work. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Research shows that we think that things like economic incentives and you know these tangible sorts of things that we can offer are going to be most motivating when we want people to do things or we want to influence somebody when in fact you know things like just expressing gratitude and giving compliments and telling people they're doing a good job means so much like we people are hungry for that and so that is such a strong incentive that we tend to underestimate 